Hello and welcome to En Route, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I'm Dennis Sanders and I am your host. Make sure that you visit the website enroutepodcast.org and while you're there you can subscribe to the show on various uh, podcast platforms like Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or uh, via RSS. We hope you'll consider doing that. It makes it easier for you to not ever miss a show. And while you're at it, if you have found value in this show, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. That helps uh, for people to find the show, uh, makes it much easier. And also, simply tell a friend about the show. That helps a lot as well. A few months ago, I did an episode where I shared my own experience of being a pastor during the COVID-19 pandemic. And at the end of that episode, I asked for other pastors to share their experiences. Well, one pastor answered back. His name is Joe Tognetti, and he is uh, a United Methodist pastor uh, and pastor of Rio First United Methodist Church in Rio Grande City, Texas. And if you know your geography, uh, Rio Grande is a uh, Grand City is a border town. It's located in the Rio Grande Valley, so it's basically right on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, In this interview, Joe shares the ups and downs of being a pastor at this really once-in-a-century event, and he shares what happened with his congregation during the worst of the pandemic, what happened to him during this time. I think it was a really great conversation, and I hope, especially if you're a pastor, but um, even if you aren't um, and we're working from home, that you'll get some good insight about this. So, with that, here is Joe Tognetti. Well, thank you, Joe, for uh, joining me on uh, this episode. Um, to start, yeah, you you are welcome. You're welcome. You're it's, welcome. it's a yeah, blessing and a privilege. Great, great. Well, to start things off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and then the church where you serve? Yes. So I am uh, a. Um, I am a uh, really in real life middle age, but for. For churches, they still consider pastors in their mid-30s to be young, so I guess I'm a young pastor. Um, you know, if you're under 55, I think they consider you young. And so I'm a youngish uh, pastor in, uh, I grew up actually in San Francisco, California. Okay. Um, went to public school through, you know, had, well, to back up a little bit, had five uh, brothers and sisters, two sisters, three brothers, Um uh, then uh, went K through eight public school, went to Catholic school. We grew up Roman Catholic in our family um, mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, w- went to Catholic school for high school. 
then went to Trinity University, which despite the name is not an especially religious school, although there is a chapel and a chaplain, but beyond that, it's basically a secular university in San Antonio. Okay. Um, went there for college and I have stayed in Texas ever since. Uh, and, and I thought I was going to go to law school and it turns out I was just called to marry a lawyer. My wife is, um, currently an assistant district, uh, superintendent, uh, excuse me, not superintendent, uh, uh, assistant district attorney for Hidalgo County, which for those who might be intimidated by that, she works on the civil side. Okay. Um, she works in their civil litigation division. So if you're in Hidalgo County and like, I don't know, commit a crime or get accused of a crime, she, she's not dealing with your stuff. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, for the, yeah. So, um, and a long story short, I mean, I, I know that the point here is not my call story. So over the years through college, I was an active Roman Catholic. After that, I went through a period of discernment and, um, and then after I got waitlisted at law school, my now wife, then girlfriend, suggested that I pray about God's next steps. Mm-hmm. And she kind of regrets that because <laughs> I, I was called to be a pastor. And so then it was a couple of years. I served as a youth minister of a, of a Presbyterian church, a PCUSA, so the main line. Um, and I ended up settling on the United Methodist Church. Uh, for a number of reasons. And in, in our system, uh, the bishop the bishop moves pastors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have a call system, which has its drawbacks, but also its benefits. You know, one, one of the great benefits of the system is that churches don't have to spend six months to a year to a year and a half looking for a pastor, mm-hmm. right? And it's, I, I mean, what I see it is, is it really benefits the churches like the ones that I've served most of my ministry like the ones I serve now, the one I serve now, um, rural churches where pastors who are seminary educated um, and, and, you know, may not, it may not be their first choice to go to a rural area, mm-hmm. um, but that's where the need is. And so the yep. bishop can say, look, this is, this is where you're needed. And so I'm blessed. I've served uh, churches in central Texas, in San Antonio. And for the last Five and a half years, I have served in what's called the Rio Grande Valley, which is okay. a region, the, the southernmost of four counties in Texas. Mm-hmm. Three of them are directly on the border. One of them is just barely north of the border. Um, and I currently serve in Starr County, which is the westernmost county in that region. Uh, I serve First United Methodist Church, Rio Grande City, if folks want to um, learn more about it. It's riofumc.org. And also we're on Facebook and YouTube, Rio FUMC. Um, you know, we stream our services, although we are back in person. We do serve, uh, we do offer worship in Spanish and English. We're an English dominant church, but we do have individuals who prefer Spanish. And so I'm blessed that I've grown. I'm not going to pull a better O'Rourke and try to bust out my Spanish here, but, but I'm strong enough in my Spanish that I can get by. Okay. Um, and, and a little bit about just in terms of the, 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 you know, some of the things that perhaps you're interested in, in and your listeners might be interested in with respect to COVID in many ways, the, the Rio Grande Valley, that region that I live in and, and many border counties in general in Texas, 
I, I can't speak to as much other states, but at least in Texas, we're both the hardest hit mm-hmm. in terms of deaths and infections because it's it's a place of, of a lot of transit. And that is not just cross-border traffic, although some people will like jump to that. Um, that's not just that. The, 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 a lot of it is traffic along the border, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially major highways coming through. And also a lot of our residents, especially in Stark County, a lot of our residents work in oil fields. And okay. so there are, there's a lot of tra- transit and transportation that couldn't be limited, uh, you know. And, and so um, we got hit hard, you know, we were a hard hit region. Our county was really hard hit. Um, but also in many ways, uh, our local response has been as strong as one could expect. Mm-hmm. Um, we were among the first to, to implement lockdowns and really people abided by that. Uh, even when masks became optional statewide, uh, you didn't start seeing people regularly not wear masks indoors until an extraordinarily high percentage of residents became vaccinated. Okay. And you still see in the, in the gas stations and other places where most, uh, where a lot of people might be from out of town, you know, they're not from here. Um, you'll still see a lot of people wearing masks because we have four Texas. It's not true for everyone in the U.S., but for Texas, we have among the strongest vaccination rates in, uh, you know, in the state as a whole. And especially for a, you know, this is a relatively impoverished community, although mm-hmm. I don't mean that emotionally and socially. I mean that financially, emotionally mm-hmm. and socially. It's a, it's a strong community in so many ways, but financially it's an impoverished community relatively speaking. And it's um, it's a predominantly Hispanic community. Uh, just one kind of aside is my wife and I went to a July 4th event in a neighboring town, Roma, which is also mm-hmm. in our county, literally the only white people there. And and there was there was someone who worked, who used to work at my daughter's daycare, who recognized my wife and may have seen us like twice but just because like we're the white people, <laughs> you know, so it's, it is kind of hard to miss. <laughs> yeah. So it's dominantly Hispanic. Okay. Um, and so for a predominantly Hispanic area for a low income area, we've had an extraordinarily strong response with regard to COVID. I think the biggest challenge that um, our communities have faced and our churches have faced, and, and this may be where some of your questions are going is with people re-engaging in their church community. Um, and we face that as a church, and I know other congregations have faced that throughout the region uh, and in our city. And so that's probably more than you wanted to know about me and about, <laughs> about my church. But go ahead and, and uh, ask your questions. Sure. Well, I think one of the first things I would want to know is, when did you kind of realize things were going to change, um, that you were going to have to stop meeting in person um, for me, that was in, I think, March 11th, March 12th, um, that we just decided, yeah, we can't worship on Sunday. And, you know, like many people thought it was just going to be a few weeks Yeah. Um, and 14 months later. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, what was it like for you during that time in March of 2020? And how did you come to a decision of what you were going to do for, as for worship in, um, right then and there? Yeah, so um, 
It was probably about Mar- March 11th, March 12th. I think I can't remember exactly. I think it was March 10th. It was shortly, it was a couple days after the NCAA, the March Madness was canceled. Yeah. And the NBA season was canceled. Um, and, and so we actually already had record low attendance that Sunday. Um, we did have in-person attendance, but we had record low. And And I'll be honest, I did not... I tried to take a middle ground. I did not take it as um, seriously or urgently as some, but also there were others who, you know, were already starting to like, it's, it's just the flu. And, and I took it more seriously than that. Um, and so I was anticipating that we would just kind of ride it out and be able to, you know, we didn't have passing of the peace. I mean, there were people who were shocked by that, that, that I said, no, like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to touch there's a there's a, a, a an older member who is so precious um, and she loves her her hugs and I said I'm sorry we're just not gonna do it um, but uh, so we were doing a couple things in that regard but then a couple days later just dominoes started to fall countywide citywide statewide and so our ad council had an emergency meeting and we just said you know what? we're just gonna have to go online. Um, it was very quick and it was really consensus driven. There wasn't um, a whole lot of controversy about it. I think different people had different opinions and, and to, to also give context, politically we're a purple county, mm-hmm. like which everyone thought we were blue, but it turns out the Republicans just weren't voting. So politically we're, we're a very light blue purple county lean democrat but not very strongly and so there are a lot of people who politically you would think would, would have been you know resistant it'll be fine just based on political stereotypes but a lot of those folks weren't they were very supportive um my congregation reflects my community in the political divides and yet pretty much everyone was on the same page that we just needed and so yeah, we thought we'd be able to meet at Easter, then we thought we'd meet in May, then we thought, you know, and it kept getting delayed, as you know. Mm-hmm. So that's, it really was a very fast domino effect that, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so um, had you already had any experience doing, and I'm assuming you did online worship, has that been anything you ever had done before? How did you, as a congregation, manage? How did you manage? We did not. <laughs> I had not. And it was it was extraordinarily time consuming. It was exciting at first, but of course it also got frustrating. Um, it also, you know, one dynamic that I discovered too late was that that um, I discovered too late that that even though we have a congregation where most people are at least proficient in Spanish and English, mm-hmm. especially our English speaking folks did not want a bilingual service, but I really didn't hear that. So that was part of initial hiccups is that we were doing a bilingual, I, I was stumbling through it, uh, trying to do one bilingual service online. The editing process took a lot longer than I thought it would. And I was trying to encourage participation. So I didn't record live. I was having people read from their homes, offer music from their homes. Um, and yet, uh, but the, the editing process really took, it took a, a logistical toll. And luckily, I'm grateful that my predecessor had instituted a website, had created a website with online giving. 
Mm-hmm. And um, we did have a YouTube page that we really didn't use. I mean, I frankly didn't know anything about it. But my, you know, at the time we had an administrative assistant. And so she graciously was like, hey, I, you know, we have this. And so we, YouTube and Facebook, we were able to kind of um, do that very quickly. But it was a steep learning curve for me. We had some things in place to be able to do it, but it was still not something we'd ever done before. And what about other um, church activities? Um, did you try to do mission projects during that time? And, and how did you try since, you know, yeah. it was hard to get together? Yeah, so eventually, um, this was much later in the year that we, um, you know, those first few months and even through the summer was just a lot of stumbling. Mm-hmm. And we tried to stay connected with small groups and and that honestly, the like Zoom small groups or that flopped mostly. Um, even our youth group, uh, you know, it just didn't, there were things, a lot of things we tried that didn't work. What did, what was really successful, we had a Thanksgiving um Ministry, normally we give food baskets. Instead, we gave gift cards. And so that was helpful. We also had a Christmas ministry where normally members donate toys. But in this time, you know, we had one person, a church member who, who's part of that ministry. And it's a it's a ministry for a town across the border in Camargo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one family is really in charge of that. So we said to minimize contact with physical things, the church was just, we were just going to raise money and folks who gave money went to that effort and that minimized. Um, and then they were responsible for purchasing all the toys and all that. So, and, and we got receipts. I mean, it was a good process. Um, we did do some food bank outreach and eventually earlier this year, we did vaccine outreach to ensure that our members were connected. But yeah, honestly, I think other churches probably had more success than we did. Um, but once a lot of our events for, were canceled, folks really got deflated. You know, our summer camp for youth got canceled, mm-hmm. things of that nature. And it was just tough to just to hang on to the Sunday worship. Um, I'm tra- Yeah, uh, that that was a lot of it. <laughs> Did you see um, the number of people who maybe attended worship go down during that period? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. It, it definitely... Um, you know, initially there was excitement about it and then it dropped to, um, so pre COVID we, you know, our last full year of, of recording, our average was 64 in worship. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, probably January through March pre COVID, it was like 58, 59. So you're talking 60 online views really after the first month or two, it probably settled in the thirties to forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the now we did do some things that helped that initially we just put it on YouTube and then then posted it to Facebook. What we ended up doing was we switched that order because more of our members were engaged in Facebook than YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so we actually like the video was embedded in Facebook. And that's actually how we, we currently do our live worship now that we're back in worship. We currently stream it live on Facebook and then post it to YouTube. And we found that that did help stem some of that decline, so to speak. 
But yeah, no, we probably, in terms of engagement, we're at about 50%. Um, and we did have, I would say the one thing we had, I tried to get a Zoom Bible study organized that didn't pan out. We did do online video Bible studies and, and we got some engagement with that. Uh, we did one on Revelation. Uh, there was one on, uh, I was trying to be inspirational. So there was one based on Max Lucado. It's a little bit outside my normal comfort zone, but it was good stuff. Um, God will carry you through. Mm-hmm. And then I think I did one other one and I can't remember what it was to be honest. Um, but we, uh, we've since, you know, yeah, I would say about 50 or so percent stayed engaged and that while we've seen a little bit of an increase, uh, since both, you know, for combined online and in person probably hasn't changed much since, even though we've been back, even without masks for about two months. Did you lose any people totally during that period? I, th- I think I think there are probably I think ten to fifteen of those sixty or so are going to be extremely tough to get back. Mm. That's just the truth. I mean, some some and and I I don't. You know, we've worked really hard and I've worked really hard to stay connected with folks, make phone calls, do visits. You can always do more, you know, I mean, there's always more you can do. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think there was definitely a loss of connection in that, in that area. Hmm. So one of the other things that's kind of fascinating is how pastors themselves went through that period. Um, I think a lot of people felt a lot more busy, even though they weren't necessarily in church. Um, and there was also been a lot of, of burnout, I think, that people yeah. have dealt with. And so how did you handle all that? How, what did you experience going through that period? Yeah, I mean, I definitely experienced some of that, you know, now... I am not in the category of pastors who thought about seriously quitting, but I know colleagues who were. Mm. Um, and and I, I credit, you know, that 50 to 60% who stayed engaged, they have really been a true blessing to me and to my family. And, and, and even, you know, even our church financial situation, we've, we've, um, we struggled some and we still do a little bit, but we're, we're picking up. Improving and I, and I think seeing signs of progress and engagement um, has given me life. But yeah, no, I definitely developed some unhealthy eating habits, sleeping habits, um, personal habits that 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 just unhealthy ways of coping with the stress. I would say I don't know that it was more time, but it was more stress, and so it was more energy that um, to do the same amount of ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, yeah, it took a toll. I mean, I'm grateful starting on Thursday, I'm taking a week long vacation and it's just a week. Uh, I'll, I'll probably take another one closer to Thanksgiving with family, but I'm grateful for that opportunity. I mean, I really, we didn't get too many of those opportunities. Uh, and so um, I think just the, the long-term wear and tear of, trying things and not succeeding, trying things and not succeeding. 
But again, I think the blessing of having a community that, and a church community, those who were engaged were engaged. And I feel loved and blessed. And I feel like God would, you know, God honors that work that they put in and you, and I've still got members who are putting in that work and I'm grateful. Um, and we also, oh, I, I would also say that one thing that did help and gave me life was we did have a Zoom Bible study for the, this spring for the Gospel of Mark. And, and we continued on Zoom just because we were already on Zoom. I mean, we could have returned in person, but that gave me life. It was good to hear folks engaging with the text. And what was a blessing was that even folks who weren't part of it, you know, we recorded on Zoom and, and I would share that video with certain people. And it was a blessing that they would respond and say, thank you, pastor. So, um, yeah, I would say that there have been, there've been blessings, but there've also, been, yeah, it's been tough and it has not always been easy. And it's been, um, it's been a struggle for me emotionally, for sure. I, I struggle with anxiety and mild depression anyway. So the, the pandemic did not help. So, um, final note, I will say though, I feel blessed if I had to deal with a congregation that was fighting all the time about restrictions, mm-hmm. I would have lost mm-hmm. my mind. And I know some of my pastor colleagues had that and, and it broke, you know, not broke some of them in the sense that they're done with life. Cause you know, God has given them paths forward, but for some of them, they left ministry. I'm grateful. We had people give opinions we had people give different opinions, but, you know, I felt blessed that every step of the way, when I sought ad council advice, um, they were there, they were supportive, they gave feedback, but it was never a sense of, there was never a sense of, well, on the one hand, this church. is all, yeah, yeah, there was never a sense of like, this is all fake, why are you worried? Nor was there a sense of, there isn't a cost to this. You know, we all knew what the social costs and the community costs were. So um, I felt blessed by that. And I know other pastors didn't experience that. And I'm sorry for them. Yeah. I mean, I've heard from other pastors. um, There was just a lot of the, you know, well, this church down the road is open. Why can't we do this? And um, you know, that's, that can be hard because, you know, they're, they may not take the the precautions that seriously. And, you know, you want to respect people and don't want people to get sick. And that's a challenge when everyone, I think, just wants to get back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what was it like, maybe as as you started to see um, people getting more vaccinated, and getting ready to maybe that there was some light at the end of the tunnel. What did you do and what did your congregation do to pre- prepare for worshiping in person again? And when did that happen? Yeah, so it was a slow transition. We we actually were, we started outdoors last fall. Mm-hmm. Did that for a few months. Because of weather, we shifted indoors and I actually would have been more worried about that if more people wanted to worship in person, but we didn't have that problem. Mm. 
So most of our people were still worshiping online. And so we could be masked and distanced and it was fine. And so I think just that slow transitions was helpful. And so we did take December off, which did stunt momentum. And and I say off, I mean, we still offered pre-recorded worship services, but we took it off from in person. That did not help, but I am grateful that we did it because this community experienced a major spike in December. Mm. It actually did end up impacting uh, some of my church members. Uh, Earlier in the year, in August, we had a church member die from COVID. Okay. And and that that's our one. We had one. And I'm I grieved over him and we grieved over him. Um, but these two families, they all recovered, but it was a blessing. We didn't worship in December because they were among those who were coming in person. So that was great that like we didn't worship in person, so that was contained mainly with their families. But after that, you know, especially when the vaccine started becoming slowly available, it was just gradual, you know, starting, you know, we, we were starting to see, we went from seeing 10 to 12 to starting to see 15 to 20. Um, and then for our Spanish worship, we had been doing that only online because our Spanish worship was always smaller. But then we, re, we brought that back, I, I think it was February, you know, the, the time is blurred. I think it was February. We brought that back and it was a great joy and blessing. You know, we started with four to five and six to seven. The vast majority of people did not return to worship until they were vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, uh, and, and that was also, I think, helpful for people. They get the vaccine, they could have the confidence to do it. It was also helpful that, that we worked with the hospital to do a vaccine drive. You know, we didn't make anyone get a vaccine, of course. You can't do that. But I call church members and say, if you're not vaccinated and if you want to get a vaccine, can I send your information to the hospital? And we had a few vaccine skeptics. But for the most part, a lot of people were already vaccinated. And those who weren't said, yes, send it. And the hospital called them and they got vaccinated. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think for me, it was a great process that there wasn't a sudden break. There yeah. wasn't a sudden like, oh, now. I think what was disappointing was that it peaked much lower than I expected. Um, and I think that that's been the experience of a lot of pastors and churches, that mm-hmm. the, the number of people worshiping in person, even once they're vaccinated and everything, is not as high, is not as much as it was pre-COVID. Why do you think that is? I think a few reasons. I think um, one, folks got out of the habit, you know, and and even, and, and some of the folks just, you know, if they didn't find the online worship appealing, you know, it then exacerbated the consumerist trends that I think we all pastors face. Where it's like, oh, I'll just start watching another church. And so if if they even follow church anymore, that's how they approach church increasingly. I think, too, to be less cynical, we have families who developed routines. And, and it was not unreasonable for them to develop new routines, new habits, new habits of work, new habits of study, new habits of 
how to stay safe and still socialize with family. Um, you know, all these new habits that it's hard to undo that mm-hmm. if, you know, even, you know, and so, you know, like I, I have one family, one, ex, I would say extended family, probably about 10 to 12 folks in two to three nuclear families in this one extended family. They started to come in person in shifts because different people within their family had just developed different worship habits mm. uh, and different personal habits. And, and they're having to unwind those commitments. Um, so to be less than, you know, those are the people I'm a little bit less worried about. You know, I just try to reach out to them as best I can, especially once I get back from vacation, really try to focus on that and, and find ways to connect. And, and I think that'll help. I, I am worried about the folks who, where their, their tendency to view church as just a commodity to consume and church is there for us to receive something as opposed to a community to be a part of, that that really, I think a lot of those folks, um, the pandemic didn't help. What do you think you've learned from this period? And what do you think your church has learned? That's a, that's a good uh, question. Um, I would say that church communities are both stronger and more fragile than I would have anticipated. The the level of commitment that those who are committed have is extraordinarily strong. Um, And the ways that churches can adapt you know, we had to, and it was deeply unfortunate that our administrator, our administrative assistant and youth director were doing wonderful work. We had to let them both go. Mm. Uh, and, and with the administrator, with both of them, it was a, it was a longer conversation. You know, we both ended on good terms. We, we both got to end that relationship at times that worked best for both us and them. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I was, it was as good of an outcome as you could expect, but it was also sad. And yet we found ways to adapt. Um, even though they did great ministry and we lost that, we found ways to adapt. So we're more flexible. We're also more fragile in the sense of connection. That, that especially a lot of the work that we do to try to reach out um, can easily be undone by seemingly small uh, changes and, and obviously COVID wasn't a small change, but by changes that are outside of our control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the things I've had to discern, especially with my own struggles with anxiety and mild depression is, okay, pastor, um, what can you control and what can't you control? You know, and having to, to try to excel at the things I can control and then for the rest, just leave it up to God. I can't control how many people show up to church. I can control how often I reach out to folks. I can control the quality of worship, quality of my sermon, um, getting volunteers. You know, I can control that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are definitely ways that I can improve in that regard. I think all of us can say that. But I can't control the precise number of people who are in church on any given Sunday. Nope. It's just out of my control. And, and so I think, I think having to, to continually remind myself of that, which is a struggle. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things just kind of listening here is that having to let two people associated with the congregation go and also dealing with the fact that a member of your congregation succumbed to COVID means you're dealing with a lot of grief. Um, and how did you process that? How did the congregation process that? That's a good question. I think in many ways we still are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the ways that I tried to help the congregation was to be very transparent. You know, with regard to the member who died, it was actually, it was a deeply unfortunate situation where there was, his kids were not involved in the church. They were involved in other churches. So they weren't able to get in touch with us in time for me to do the funeral. And so that was just heartbreaking. I mean, no one really could control it. I mean, it is what it is. Um, but I was able to reach out to them eventually and I was able to talk to them and, and, and I got their permission to say that, that Eraldo died. Sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned his name, but the gentleman died from COVID. Um, and, and so I think just being public and the same thing with our youth director and our administrator, we were very public about that process and, and letting people know, I think it also, you know, we've seen modest return in giving, financial mm-hmm. giving. Um, you know, giving went down a lot, although online giving helped stem that, and that's great. But we saw giving go down a lot. But I think we also saw giving start to go up a little bit. Once it was like, oh, our youth director's gone, our administrator's gone. Oh, like, this is serious. You know, this isn't a temporary thing. Um but yeah, I mean, I'll confess that I'm not always the most effective at consciously processing grief. And I would say this year, I have done a lot of funerals and they're not COVID related, but just a lot of different, I think just the stress of this year wore on people. And so I'll admit for myself, I don't always hand, I, I sometimes compartmentalize it too much. And then, you know, take, process it in unhealthy ways, mm-hmm. um, just getting mad easily, um, not eating right, et cetera. But, um, you know, the thing that I tried to do for my congregation was to be very public. And I think that did help. So where do you think, see the church going from here yourself after having this experience? You know, I hope um, to stay, you know, I, I mentioned our Episcopal system. Mm-hmm. The, the standard appointment would be about four to six years. This I, I've already been here two years. And so I hope to be here at least that long, if not longer. This is a wonderful community. And these church members, especially the ones who've stayed committed, and even the ones who've been kind of committed, like they've stayed connected peripherally, they've all been a blessing and I love them. I, I don't know what the future holds though, in terms of sustainability. I, I do think that this church is stronger than, than some of our members uh, think. And But I also, like I said, I think it's also more fragile. Like a lot of small community churches are more fragile than 
we once believed. So my hope is that with continued engagement, especially once we get into the fall, I think that'll give me a better sense of where this church is headed. Because right now, a lot of people are traveling in ways that they couldn't last year. And so a lot of our low attendance is impacted by that. Mm -hmm. But the fall, that won't be an issue. And so um, I'm hopeful, but certainly uh, an optimistic about what God can do, can continue to do through our church. This church has been a community staple. The, you know, the Lord has worked through this church for over 160 years. And, and wow. I hope that, that continues. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I can't, you know, I'm, I, I can't give any guarantees, of course. And we will see where, um, where God and, and the members of this community have us go. Oh, I think one um, final question and I should have asked this earlier is, um, are you doing singing in person right now? And, and how are you handling communion? Or is that like a well, phased in? Was it a phased yeah, in process? Or is that's, it a, that's a good question. So we, we experimented with different things regarding singing in person. Um, and uh, I think because the vast majority of not just our county, but of our, of our church in particular mm-hmm. are vaccinated, singing is just not a problem. Yeah. We just, you know, we experimented, we pushed the pulpit back. We, we did some things to try to keep distance. We had masks on. We required masks until the CDC said that vaccinated people didn't need to wear them. And then we lifted that. So we did try different things. Communion is a little different. Right now we have those little uh, prepackaged cups with the wafer inside of them. Yep, we have and those this, too. This la- yeah, and this last Sunday, I handed them out individually in their seats. Mm. I suggested that going forward, they would probably go ahead and come up, you know, starting next month. Um, But, and I hope to do intention. Intention is my favorite form of communion where you dip the bread in the cup and consume it together. But I I think we're probably three to six months away from that. Yeah, I I hear you on that. I would love to do intention, but it's one of the things you kind of have to see where things are going and all yeah. that. So um, one of the other things that, that are, is kind of a concern, but not, but everyone's kind of keeping a watchful eye out are the variants um, that have been going about. Um, what has your church been doing regarding that? Uh, I mean, I'll confess that we have just gone ahead. We did send applications for a summer youth camp mm-hmm. because myself and all the youth involved and even the other adult volunteer were all vaccinated. And everything we've, you know, I'm keeping an eye on it, but everything I've read said that even though there's an increased chance of infection, uh, of, of, get, of contracting covid there's an extremely small chance of any serious illness mm-hmm. if you're vaccinated, uh, even from the variants. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're just plowing ahead. And we're like, look, we'll keep an eye on it, but we're going to, um, you know, right now the data suggests that if, if you're vaccinated, you're, you're, you're fairly safe. And so I think that we're just going to keep, keep progressing. So. Okay. 
Well, Joe, I, I'm glad we had this discussion. It was yeah, I am too. I'm glad we got to to have this conversation. So yeah, and hopefully we will talk again sometime soon. So, definitely, definitely, so. and uh, thank you, and and thank all of your listeners, and blessings to you and your congregation. I know your congregation not only had COVID, but um, my geography is a little hazy. Y'all were either near or at the city where George Floyd died, right? We are near. Um, near. We're in um, Matamirai, where my church is, our church is located is uh, about 10 miles north of St. Paul, maybe about 15 miles from Minneapolis. Um, And I live in Minneapolis proper. So yeah, things, we um, saw some things up close and personal. Yeah, so I definitely am praying for your congregation and congregations like yours who are dealing with that, the grief of COVID and the extra layer of grief that, that, I mean, our whole nation was impacted by that, by questions about racial injustice and policing Mm -hmm. um, and struggling with, you know, especially in communities that are traditionally supportive of law enforcement, how do you process that? Um, but I, I know that that hit especially hard there. So I'm definitely in prayer for y'all. Well, thank you. That that means a lot. So it has been an eventful year in more ways than one yes. in Minnesota. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, and we will... Uh, Talk again soon. Okay. Be blessed. Take care. All right. take the time to talk to me and to share about his experiences uh, during the pandemic um, in that very crazy, crazy year uh, that was 2020. Now, I'm not done yet asking, I am still interested in finding out from other pastors who are willing to share their experiences uh, and what happened to their congregation during the pandemic. And if you're interested, drop me an email and that is at denmin at gmail.com. And if you didn't really pick up that email address, check in the show notes. You'll find it there as well. Well, I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. There are so many different podcasts out there, and um, you could listen to a lot of others. I know you do listen to a lot of others, so I am very thankful for your support. Please make sure to visit our website, enroutepodcast.org, where you can sign up to be on our mailing list um, of our brand new newsletter, where you can listen to past episodes and also read some articles of mine. And while you're there at the website, you can also make a donation that will support this podcast. And feel free to make a donation of any size, whether it's $1 or $10. And don't forget, again, to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, 
be at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a rating or a written review. Well, that is it for this episode of En Route, Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed.